Okay, thanks everybody for coming. This is really great. Um, help yourself to snacks. And if you need to go to the washroom, there's two people in blue hats, um, Jess and Christian, and they'll help you out. Um, so before we start, I want to acknowledge that we are on unceded territory owned by the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. And it is our privilege to be able to work, live, and create on this land. It is also important to lend our attention to our surroundings. Um, we're in Chinatown, and it's a neighborhood that's been built on exclusion and racism. Today, working class individuals and low-income residents are facing alienation and displacement from their neighborhood because of a lack of focus on housing and affordability. So in both direct and oblique ways, the readers will be somewhat addressing the surroundings tonight. Um, and I want to thank and introduce the tent shop, Jacob over there, and Steph and Emma, who organized Lit 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 Lit. Um, and I'll just quickly read their bios. So the tent shop is a multifaceted project by artist Jacob Gleason. Both an online store, gallery, and physical space, the environments created provide a migrating venue for sharing a range of interests. And then Lit 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 is a bi-monthly literary event that simply invites four readers, poets, or artists to read their own work to interested parties. So this edition of Lit 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 is a, it's in conjunction with um, the launch of Chinatown and the persistence of anti-Asian racism. It's an essay co-authored co by two of our readers tonight, Brent Lin and Nathan Crompton, and also Ricky Lin. <laughs> and, and Janie, shoot, and Janie, sorry Janie. Um, so it's available on a sliding, it's available to purchase on a sliding scale of five to 10, just over there by Christian in the blue hat. And, um, but just pay whatever you can. Um, so I'm just gonna read something and then Jeff will read something. Maybe so, I'll sit while you're reading. Really? Okay, I'll stand. Well, <laughs> I'll stand. Okay. Um, so I just wanted to say a little bit about the process of putting it together because um, I think a lot, a lot kind of goes amiss when uh, you're just creating a poster and you like have to appeal to, to a certain crowd to bring people out, and then there's like a lot that doesn't get said, and so I just wanted to share some of those thoughts. Um, <clears throat> So naming this series Sky Island came from a place of cynicism, and it was meant to mimic the verbose branding of condo developments nearby. Sky referring to one of Vancouver's selling points as an urban place surrounded by wilderness, while also being the height that city zoning has allowed condo developments to climb. An island signifying an isolated place, detached from the larger mass, whether that be land, affordability, or awareness. Um, so spending an increased time on the rooftop, I met uh, a couple people who come here every morning for their coffee on a weekday afternoon to eat their lunch, to seek privacy, or for simple quietude. I became interested in how the parking lot was not solely being used in the way it's been prescribed for merely cars and drivers, um, but like for a whole other, the, the reasons I just mentioned, and then also uh, I met this I met two construction workers who've been coming up here every day for their lunch. Um, and just, uh, they, they came up here to have coffee 
and just and he showed me uh, in his in his back car in the back of his car in his trunk he has a he has a like little Nespresso machine and uh, and like a cooler and he offered me a key if I ever wanted coffee or water which was, I thought was great and then um, just when he was driving out he gave me a card of his which is his non for profit organization that he's been putting together for eight years. And it's called It's Yours. It's I-T-S-Y-E-R-S. And he's been gathering scrap material and scrap furniture to um, to like repurpose it and like give it away as uh, free furniture to low-income families and deliver it for free. So that was like one really rewarding thing, just hanging out up here. And uh, so for Sky Island, I wanted to bring emerging artists, dancers, musicians, and writers together in a space not specific to art and hopefully more inclusive. Presenting in this space, all work is up to the elements and up to the public that passes through. Much of the value of the work exists in its use, whether that's found in shade, amplified sound, seating, looking, or leaning. But as sensitive or responsive as we can be to this space, Sky Island is temporary. Once the artwork is taken down and the parkade returns to its everyday state, we will let our ideas, will, will we let our ideas become documents? Can we mobilize our ideas and our discomforts outside of our exhibitions, galleries, and studios and give back to the neighborhood? Um, putting this project together, um, I was, it feels weird to read a script when it's like something very honest that I wrote, so I just apologize for like, yeah, anyway. Putting this project together and grappling with what it means to do something here has been a process of not only balancing creative intents, but constantly questioning the fallibility of who's here, who is this for, and why is this here. And despite that our efforts and enjoyment of this meaningful place to some of us, we are operating in a zone of exclusion. We can try to be hospitable and hope that the alternative ways in which the parkade has been used before us will sustain our passing but Sky Island is hovering over issues. Can we find ways of grounding our responsibilities and cementing our bonds to the communities we are implicated in displacing? Can we retain our discomfort that may prevent our area indifference? Thanks. Thanks, Carl. Do whatever you want. Okay. I wanted to thank everyone for coming tonight, today, don't really know what this time is classified as. Um, and I want to thank my collaborator, Emma, for our ongoing commitment to each other and literary practices, and Kara and all the artists involved. And um, I'm sure I'm missing a lot of people. But just know that I, I am thankful. Um, I wrote a short text that could kind of be considered like a general statement or like an editor's note. Um, and it's called, um, it's called, Be a Goddamn Professional. <clears throat> As presenters at Sky Island, we are not beholden to institutional limitations, mandates, and are subject to extremely limited bureaucracy. We are, not an we are not on institutional time here unless the institutional authority falls on the shoulders of CARA. But authoritarian is not how I would describe the manner in which she has conducted this event. So. The consensus we have maintained throughout all of these events is not one imposed upon us by the pressure to uphold a certain air of professionalism 
or informed by an institutional context. Insofar as artistic freedom goes, Sky Island is pretty damn ideal. What I've seen is professional, though, because I prefer to understand and define professionalism in the sense that we are not going to waste each other's time. All the works are considerate of cars charged to consider the site and are equally generous to the audience that suspended their expectations and are genuinely also happy to see something different. This is what mutual recognition looks like to me. A promise to not waste each other's time between curator, artist, and audience. This promise is informed by kinship. We show respect and support one another's practices because we acknowledge that a member of our community has courage enough to wield a part of themselves in public, even if that public is still quite esoteric. But caring esoteric audiences are not recused from the larger responsibility of being citizens in Vancouver's Chinatown. Most especially if this is where we rent our studios, attend and mount exhibitions, perform music, deliver readings, and it is where all of the above has occurred or has yet to occur this month under the umbrella of Sky Island. Not an institution, but an artistic ideal. What can we do with an artistic ideal? We want to hear music and experience art by our community and feel like we belong to something beyond the cultivation of taste or the assemblage of bodies to drink and flirt, but also to grow as humans who form opinions and ideas around such cultural presentations. Whose ideal? Ours. But its impermanence throws the pursuit of this particular ideal into question. We come. We have a great time. We tidy up. We leave. What remains? At this height, the only ideal that gets sustained are residents of condos, and their presence will soon eclipse that of our own if we manage our freedom frivolously. What does it mean to assemble on a rooftop in Chinatown, a neighborhood pursued by developers and aspiring homeowners? When they come to Chinatown, they see it through the lens of Orientalism or speculating on its land value. What does it mean to share that spatial quality of altitude, of elevated living, instead of filling the space with tasteful furnishings, looking down and hoping more palatable amenities will open up in the neighborhood? My own personal thoughts and ideal, if you will, is that we take our assembly, mutual interest, intellect, and sense of belonging that we can find in Chinatown as a place where we periodically gather and maintain our relationships and interests and hold ourselves accountable to this endangered infrastructure, a great and good place for people, for artists, writers, and musicians who have studios and frequent the galleries that are nestled between or just simply are zones of exclusion. To ask how much solidarity can we build in one evening of readings is too much is to put too much expectation for political awakening. Perhaps a rhetorical question then. Can we proceed with an aesthetic program without regarding the lived experience of Chinatown? No. Chinatown is a community that has and gives and continues to give and give to young, interested, and capable people like yourselves, and has so far only received the so-called courtesy of staying in our lane of privilege. If we're not talking about Chinatown, we are simply here taking up space while we can, but what kind of culture will take our place in the aftermath of culture washing and gentrification? To be an artist is to imagine a better world, not opportunities for cultural capital gain. If we're not talking about Chinatown, we let our imaginations languish in the neoliberal cesspit that relies on our generation to not give a shit about anything, while we rub our chins and wonder how to put a price on ourselves. Be concerned. Be concerned not only with actions that can be achieved, but the relationships, effective bounds, microprocesses, and the possibility of taking risks together. Let's be goddamn professionals. Thanks.
everyone. Um, thank you, Steph and Cara, for introducing the night this evening. Um, I am Emma, and I'm part of Lit Lit Lit, and I'm uh, very happy to be here with you all tonight and for all of the work that has gone into this. I'm reading bios. So uh, up next, <laughs> we have uh, Bara Hladakova, who will be doing a reading tonight. And Bara is a writer and musician who has been seen eavesdropping on local bystanders. She recently performed at Deep Blue with Silky Boys, collaborated on Behind the Curtain at Dynamo Arts Association, and hydrated her tropical plants. Bara? Hey, thanks for coming. I'm going to read two pieces of fiction. Every one of our appliances broke the week we were trying to break up. It started with the toaster. I had just received my results for celiac disease positive. I decided to eat all seven loaves in our apartment and then never again. I had found them all behind the market on Tuesday, a day old, stale but free. We were down to three, and as we were considering if we should live separate lives, the toaster fried. We toasted the last three loaves in the oven. We calculated how much eating not bread would cost if we lived together and how much it would cost if we lived apart. How do we calculate the cost of love and trust? I wanted to ask her. Do we put love in the bank for a trust on cards? If we cut out free food, do the books balance? If we are always counting, is anything free? It's time to throw down a dollar, she said, her resolution, her palm on the kitchen table. Maybe we'd have a, a dollar to throw down if you were home once in a while. I said as I looked at the bread turning a soft gold in the oven. She was quiet. That was the last time the oven turned on. Next is the electric kettle. If we want money for not free bread, she said, you should stop buying floral summer dresses and going to the cafe every day. I told her I stole every single dress I own, which was almost true, and my coffee is cheaper than her whiskey. Plus, I never take pub public transit. All these missing women and you want me to walk home alone at night, she said, in between bites of dried plums. That's not my point, I said, and cranked the stove to high with the electric kettle on the element. We wrote a list of how we're going to contain our entire lives within walking and biking distance of the apartment, public transit free. I smelled rubber. I drew one column if we're going to be together and one if we were going to be apart, and the chemical smoke of the melting plastic of the electric kettle overtook us. She was high from the fumes, coughing and laughing, stumbling out the door, melted kettle in hand. I took the disfigured kettle from her and tossed it in the trash. We went to the library while the apartment emptied of toxins. The stove was now covered in a thick layer of melted black plastic and no longer functional. After two hours in library stacks, falling into words, watching thick rain, I started to think that perhaps we could make it. She looked good warming her hands with pages. We came home to an expanding puddle on the kitchen floor. The freezer was melting. I asked the stars, is this even possible? I had to take a moment in the bathroom to wash my face in cold water. What would the landlord say? We mopped and laid towels. We transferred frozen food into coolers. If you weren't always so serious, we could laugh at all of this, she said. When the heating went, she said that she had been having dreams of frozen walls. 
That night we wore all of our sweaters and decided that we should probably break up some other time. The first time I saw her, this is the second piece. The first time I saw her, I followed her like a tourist. I wanted to ask her something like, where is the sky train? But then she would know I didn't have an iPhone. The second time was at the park. Kids were running under spraying water and someone was dead in the bathroom. They removed the person from behind a family eating triangle sandwiches. She was there smoking on a bench, the only other person walking. One time I, one time I saw her, she came to talk to the security guard. They exchanged a few words. I watched him slick his hand over his tight ponytail. She wasn't there for the welfare. She, they didn't speak for long. I couldn't tell if it was business or groceries. She nodded, okay, fine, and left. He moved in small, upward jolts. I loathed him for it. A week later, I got insufficient funds for a pair of flip-flops and I drank a beer at the park. She was sitting under a tree, then walked off with her bag and didn't come back. I saw the security card, <coughs> excuse me, at Pat's. I was high on tramadol. I served him and forgot the orders for tables eight and 11. I could feel her. Where had he seen her last? I circled him with dip options, charmed him with drink specials. He laughed and jolted and I found out that he liked the Princeton because his uncle worked there and he got specials on drinks. I spent the afternoon smoking and what I couldn't decide was a park or a ditch. It definitely didn't have a name. It did have a bench, but it was not a park. My lighter was in my bag that I had left at the park, but I could ask anyone for a light because it was one of those days that I knew I wouldn't see her. Princeton became a problem for me, but not for her. She never came in. I wanted her to see me wearing the jacket I found. It looked brand new. But hope is a strange game you should only play if you're rich. It had been days I didn't know how many was she missing. The lady from the garden says you can't trust doomsayers unless you are one yourself, so don't trust tomorrow or even yourself. I searched for her in the buildings. They flip faster than pages. I couldn't stop reading. This time last year, the gutters were full of pink blossoms. Now it's all cement dust. In 87 minutes, the caseworker was rude to six people, and the security guard consoled each one on their way out. I'm not sure why she still works here. Did you find a place yet? Six months, geez, that's the pits. Always one thing after another. He consoled, he jolted, she didn't come in. I saw her at Waves in Metrotown. I was in heels and a fur coat, walking around the block with a man who was about to employ me. I breezed by her reflection. This was not the time, but she wasn't dead and neither was I. She started to change shape, but I understood. I saw her dressing up and not giving a fuck about what she wore. I saw her taking care of shit and not giving a shit. You slip between time and memory slips too. Too many documents, not enough food, just loops. How to eat, not lose the place, stay on time. Get online to find jobs, apply for income assistance, disability, loan repayment plans. Get a new ID, not enough time, check emails, 
Doc says wait. Blood test three months over two. Forgot password for myself, served .gov account locked. Getting flooded. Problem solving. Mind holes. Loops. Delay. Insomnia. Can't have ibuprofen on an empty stomach. Awake at dawn. Loops and coffee. Walking fast. Searching for her always. Bed for four days. Seeing specialists. Book appointment for x-ray. Eight month wait list. Research bankruptcy. Arrive early for six job interviews in one day. Deadlines, time constraints, morphine, rental applications. Waitlist, stealing underwear, heels, meat. Catching the train drunk from New West. Buying too many condoms. Making fake resumes. Appealing drinking in public ticket. Light smoke, smoke, inhale, exhale. Loop, loop, loop. Delay, 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 delay. There isn't shit for you if you get 3 a.m. My glass is broke, my glass, my glass. My glass is broke and Max Optical is a pile of rubble. Take me on a bus and get me out of here. I blame her. All I'm trying to do is find you so I can love you. I started wearing a mirror around my neck so that when you saw me, you'd also see yourself. But all my mirror saw was my reflection in the 22. Or was it you on the 22? It doesn't matter, though, because at least now I can put li lipstick on at the bus stop, and when I look down, I can still see the sky. Sky, 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 sky. Thank you. Thank you, Bara. So, next up, Listen Chen is a Taoist and a bat enthusiast who lives and writes on unceded Coast Salish territories. Thanks, Emma. Um, thank you, Cara, for the territory acknowledgement. Uh, my name is Listen, or Ting Chun, if you speak Mandarin. I grew up in Hong Kong. I've been living in Vancouver for 10 years. Um, my mother is originally from mainland China, from Beijing. Uh, she lived there throughout the Cultural Revolution and then uh, moved to Hong Kong when she was like 27. My dad's a white guy from the Midwest. That's some of the context that I'm coming from. Um, I'll read three things. The first thing I wrote for this event, um, I didn't get as much time as I wanted, so it's incomplete and a little bit rough around the edges, but um, you all look so kind that I know you'll be gentle to me. We are on this rooftop together. You are on this rooftop. I am on this rooftop. There are people on other rooftops, but anyway, we are on this rooftop together. This rooftop, which serves as a semi-permeable boundary partitioning memory from the emptiness of the sky. The ghost of meritocracy launches trans-Pacific hauntings from this rooftop. You can do whatever you like on this rooftop. The inconsequence of other people's lives follows you like a shadow on this naked rooftop. The sun is 131 years old, and this rooftop is our tanning bed. Our bodies go way back. I recognize your body from the time I got this ohm tattoo and many other events over the course of our lives, which I therefore don't need to go over. Now we are gathered on this rooftop, and balloons float down from the troposphere. 
distending with celestial benevolence and ancient wisdom, such as, a good Mandarin is obsessed with heaven. Silence is the sound of two millennia of class hierarchy. Capitalist is not a race. Neither is Chinatown or person who made my iPhone. See, the tragedy of being whatever is that everything is nirvanic, because emptiness is time. Emptiness is time, and bodies are unevenly yoked by the sun, by chains of production, by genocide, by joy, by garbage. If I say that the Chinese have a passion for suffering, am I also saying that the Chinese have a passion for not suffering? Most walls are painted one color to the exclusion of all other colors. Red, gold, green, gray. It's not togetherness that's awful, only the because of it. On my body's trip to China, a crack in the cow's scapula ended all calendars, but sweatshops and steel mills continued to run. What is an object of consequence? In the future, as in the past, migrant workers are sorting through mountains of electronic waste. Emptiness can't be pointed to, but the lead in a person's bloodstream can. I.e., the job of the historian is to divine, and the job of the young fox is to cross the river without getting its tail wet. This is what heaven wants, ergo a good mandarin should make it so. The Chinese love survival so much, they smuggle other people's garbage into their homes. Are you Chinese? Am I? Being on this rooftop together is certainly a magnificent nirvanic failure. The best way to love suffering is to tell yourself that you weren't promised anything. The painted wall, the broken bucket, the stolen rooftop, the discarded circuit board, the dada jing, none of them will argue with you. <laughs> Who here understands Mandarin? Great, okay. Cantonese? Who here can tell the difference between the two when they hear it? Okay, should see more hands. Anyway, um, this one's called uh, or everything in China is fake, don't call me comrade. Irrespective of meteorological conditions, contrast and saturation decrease the further an object is from the lens. However, on warm and windless afternoons, it is particularly easy to capture the optical severity of the situation. Last time I went to China, all my pictures turned out brown and grainy. It would mean so much to me to finally get some gray pictures in China. Sorry your sunset got scattered and stuff, or that there's nothing white about a cloud. I mean, light is all touch, except for where it doesn't land. And prolonged standing changes the way blood flows in a body, which is where the reddest part of the sky comes from. Lengthening the atmosphere while a paper mouth repeats, the soul has departed so that we can all pretend to go home. Jay places a small plate over a cup of water to keep the dust out, and then stuffs wet rags underneath the front door. The water here is not good. Fruit is also not good. The cumulative nap time of a cab driver working a 24-hour shift, entering the troposphere colloidally, encountering 11 free trade agreements, a bucket of barbecue ashes longing to be made cumulus, several loaned panda bears, Jay's calluses, one genderqueer Taoist immortal, and the unknown total of suicides committed during the 20th century. What if you were born in China during the Cultural Revolution with no schools anywhere for 10 years? Your career dreams never would have come true. Or what if you were many years ago in a street market, Jay and I watched a cardboard box full of squirming young Mongols. 
dyed to look like St. Bernard's. Do not assume that you are safe. Though the hum of an air purifier in a clean room makes me sleep like a baby, notwithstanding any given AQI reading. It turns out changes in atmospheric pressure located on the outside of a newly erected air dome have very little to do with whether or not your mother still has her tonsils. Do you like rain? Since they repainted the building, the sound of the street being swept remains unchanged. Swallows nest beneath every eave, and blood still exits the body silently. Rather, there is only the memory of bare skin on tile and an unknown voice echoing through the dormitory in the morning. Sula, Sula. But that was on another planet. Over on this dirt ball, freedom has fled to New Zealand. Avoid activities that make you breathe faster or more deeply, including but not limited to seances with buried children and uploading travel photography to your Flickr account. A few years won't harm me or my family, right? Just keep your windows closed. The sign outside the mall saying revolution instead of renovation. For seven years, M's dreams were entirely sonic, black canopies populated by scuffling boots, strained throats, gunshots, and applause. Some of us haven't died a single time since before we were born. Whatever color the sky was last month being what? Apex blue, beyond insects, ma. Ditch oil, the internet, class nap time? Try explaining ice nuclei to a superstition or per capita to a tomb. Body snatching and free cremations being a natural consequence of agricultural industrialization. You've got to be in it and away from it at the same time, i.e. parallax, i.e. i.e. it's hard to tell whether there are too many souls in the ground or in the sky. Um, so I thought I'd end with a poem, not by me. Um, it's by an author called Wu Xia from an anthology of Chinese migrant worker poetry. And it was on my mind um, while I was thinking about this event. It's called Sundress. The packing area is flooded with light. The iron I'm holding collects all the warmth of my hands. I want to press the straps flat so they won't dig into your shoulders when you wear it and then press up from the waist, a lovely waist, where someone can lay a fine hand, and on the tree-shaded lane, caress a quiet kind of love. Last, I'll smooth the dress out to iron the pleats to equal widths, so you can sit by a lake or on a grassy lawn and wait for a breeze like a flower. Soon when I get off work, I'll wash my sweaty uniform, and the sundress will be packed and shipped to a fashionable store. It will wait, it will wait just for you, unknown girl. I love you. Thanks. So thanks, Bara and Wisin, uh, for your readings. <laughs> yes, yes, clap. <laughs> um, so the next part of Lit 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 is going to be a double reading with Nate Compton and Brent Lynn. Brent Lynn, Nate Compton, where is he? Oh, there, he, there you are, right in front of me. <laughs> 
Okay, um, and I'm just gonna give like a few remarks to contextualize the pamphlet that we're launching this evening. Um, just so you know like where it came from. Uh, it's not just like this random tangential publication at a, another literary event. Um, <laughs> okay, um, and then following my remarks, Emma will read bios, and then we'll get started, and then following that, Janie and I will have a brief conversation about um, Chinatown. Okay, so, um, so my name is Stephanie. For those of you who don't know me, I see a lot of familiar faces, but some that aren't. And um, I think that in the community, I am sort of identified as like a writer and a curator, um, but I also edit for the Namelander. And um, being in the editorial collective has been really formative for me in, in how I conduct my practice as an art professional as well. So I'm just gonna give a few remarks about that and the culmination of this pamphlet. So I joined the collective very shortly after I received my BFA from Emily Carr University. And Nathan invited me for coffee and asked me if I was very busy at that moment. And like most recent undergraduates, I wasn't. He invited me to join the collective and didn't really subject me to any sort of vetting process or suspect that just because I spent the last four years of my life constructing my intellect pretty much exclusively with art history and contemporary art theory, that political consciousness would be lost on me. So thanks, Nate. <laughs> um, he took me very seriously as a member of the collective from the beginning, and he was right to do so because it meant that I had to take myself seriously so that we could remain friends and so that I could stay in the collective and meet Vara, who's also in the collective, joined as an editor over a year ago now. And then last summer, I was part of a research collective called NOPE, hosted at 221A by their librarian, our friend, Vincent Tao. Over the summer, our agenda was to examine the political landscape that surrounds 221A, Chinatown, and the downtown east side. I decided my project was to research material or information pertaining to our rights and to local history that would be considered ostensibly accessible, but was largely buried by links or web pages designed against close readership and then to frame the content to give that information a different life as a pamphlet. Setting aside my usual inclinations towards titling my projects whimsical and obtuse things, a prime example being lit, 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 this project was given the rather didactic title, Pamphlets Published by Nope. Because the project was aspiring to generate clarity on things that were available, but designed against our necessary edification. Over the course of my tenure as a research resident <clears throat> for NOPE, we made the Know Your Rights Handbook, BC Employee Field Guide, A Brief History of Race and Real Estate, and A Brief History of Race and Real Estate, which is part one of Nathan's three-part series on Chinatown, originally published in the Namelander in 2012. This three-part essay was edited, rewritten, and translated into traditional Chinese by Brent Lin and his father, Ricky Lin, and published as a pamphlet being launched today. During my time with NOPE, the researchers met with Janie of Chinatown Action Group upon invitation with, from Vince, who was beginning to get involved in organizing with them. When I began editing down Nate's essay, Nate asked Janie to put her eyes on it while we were going through the process of focusing it more closely on Chinatown's history. Her contributions to this pamphlet are so significant, and she is considered co-authored of this revised and updated version. Okay, I would like to invite Nate and Brent to come up and read a section of the pamphlet. But first, their bios. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> 
Nathan Crompton is a writer based in Vancouver, where he works as a housing organizer and edits The Mainlander. He's currently completing his PhD in French history at Simon Fraser University and has contributed art criticism to Philip, October, and the Bartleby Review. Brent Lynn has been a business consultant and television reporter. These days, he studies media theory at McGill. His writings on digital culture have been published in Attractivo, Queno Bello, and Real Life. Nathan and Brent, the stage is yours. So how we're going to do this is I'm going to read um, the Chinese translation out in Cantonese. How many people here understand Cantonese? And then Nate will do the English version after that. Wafa受受成是個或中滿種族歧視的不平等對待,到今至有一百五十年的歷史。在十九、十八世紀時,數以百計的苦力被帶到西岸南修建鐵路 建築公司在當時就為自己慳了三百萬加元。當華工和白人苦工在罐頭工廠、礦廠和墳木營一起苦幹時,他們對一起被剝削的處境得到共同的認知,而這個認知和認同曾掀起過白人、華人聯盟的
。今天嘅華埠被描述成為一個奇異嘅旅遊景點，嗰度嘅中國文化淪落為建築物外嘅燈籠同籠呢啲被東方化嘅基本圖案。當反亞派華種族歧視對喺列治文只有華語標題嘅反對增加時，華埠暴露咗呢種種族歧視嘅真面目。喺嗰度，語言繼續成為排外主義嘅一個重要機制。有關城市新發展以及發展申請通過嘅過程資料，全部都係英文嘅。中文翻譯係不合適，一係不合適就係根本不存在。只要話中講中文嘅居民被防止將佢哋嘅意見表達出嚟，或者無法掌握對佢哋社區所做嘅決定，咁華埠就只能繼續等別人嚟定義了。市政廳嘅華埠社區計劃同經濟興策略寫明華埠需要繼續保持相關性，佢必須伸手歡迎各種不同背景嘅人，設定咗舞台將華埠變成做一個被貴族化，比如白人中產階級嘅社區。作為一種經濟策略，經濟上嘅束綁同缺少嘅投資已經導致咗發展商嘅租金空了，佢哋而家可以用華埠嘅文化作為樓盤嘅賣點。但呢係一種落井下石，因為創造呢種文化嘅人們將會被逼遷或者被剝削更高嘅租金。正如薩特曾對上海發問過：窮人曾經認過呢個城市嗎？或者呢個城市將會壓倒佢哋？喺今日温哥華嘅環境下，這個問題嘅答案已經從下面嘅概念中得到提示。華埠仲有窮人呢回事？將被主流嘅社區形象永遠地抹去，華埠嘅形象永遠正為新一輪嘅投資投資資本準備住，被商業改進會嘅精英不斷鼓吹嘅博客，或者係規劃者同旅客旅客嘅小冊子淨化。呢、這個創造性城市嘅目標就係不斷推動呢個城市自強逼性嘅繁榮嘅設計。隨住呢個城市裏邊有亞洲元素嘅地方同空間。而交咗俾製造千篇一律嘅皮亞皮氏文化同創造性階層嘅身份嘅機械，新興嘅文化保留咗呢啲舊地方同佢哋遺留嘅名字、大樓、標誌同形象。新公寓，譬如尊船、姜，係以東方方言作為設計同銷售嘅賣點。誒，吸引現居喺 Kisalano 嘅中產專級人士，即中產專業人士。而新嘅生生意被招商進入華埠來服務居民嘅新階層，例如潮流餐廳，提供目標係服務更多嘅顧客嘅亞洲食物，但杜絕了社區裏邊大多數人。無論係通過瑜伽、新紀元嘅佛教，還係還係只係生活喺靠近華埠精神嘅閣樓裏住喺笠入去嘅港式陽台嘅住客，就能將東方嘅價值觀融入西方嘅生活方式。今日公寓嘅銷售越來越多地使用呢個世界雙贏嘅概念，經常使工業業主踏入華埠呢個機會與風險並存之地方嘅迷思，聊起明確嘅帶住殖民心態嘅探險感。建築歷史學家 Roger Winsor Liston 對香格里拉大廈評論中明確了批判了華玩弄帝民主義、殖民帝國主義。鄉愁嘅銷售方法，在往東喺香港里拉大廈之外嘅地產發展項目係 Woodward 大廈
喺新發展公屋中 ，Bob Rennie 將整個温市東中心東端推銷成一個勇敢嘅新界。喺呢啲標語同其他宣傳中 ，Rennie 邀請公寓嘅買主跟隨佢自己康德拉式嘅旅途，去到華埠嘅前面，拋棄喺現城嘅界內居住嘅舒逸感。二零零九年 ，Rennie 自己霸佔咗 Pender 街嘅永新大廈，大廈被作為 Rennie Marketing Systems 中辦公室同公司總部。但 Rennie 企圖避開對赤裸商業利益嘅注意，而把華埠嘅搬遷講成係向殖民地邊界嘅進軍。佢寫話：我非常唔想人民將佢睇成係一個地產投資，並希望睇成係文化歷險。So. Thank you, Brent, for like the enormous amount of work that went into translating this.、Um, and Ricky, Brent's dad,、um, who helped. And、um, uh, Brent and I had had to sit down and figure out like which parts of this we would read because it's a lot longer than that. So we we came up with a kind of selection of parts, but. It might feel a bit fragmented, so、uh, if、um, if that's the case, then I apologize.、Um, uh, and thank you to Steph for the amazing amount of work that went into making this. And lastly, to Jamie because、um, the original version of this text was、um, not not uh, as as uh, would not be、um, worth reading tonight, but Jamie.、Um, Transformed it. So,、um, I, if if this is useful, mostly it'll be useful because there's going to be a conversation later、uh, between Steph and Jamie.、Um, so, at the very least, this might help give some context. And again, we we decided to kind of start not at the beginning. So,、um, Chinatown's history of unequal and racist treatment has extended across at least 150 years of city planning. The city of Vancouver itself was born out of the forced removal of Coast Salish communities from their traditional homelands. These origins, however, were doubled by a persistent history of racism against Chinese and Asian immigrants in Vancouver. In the 18th and 19th centuries, hundreds of contract laborers were brought to the West Coast to build the railway and construct, construct the city that we now know as Vancouver. Migrants were encouraged by promises of wages and security in Canada, but once here, the government refused to enact a settlement plan、uh, or give support. The low wages paid to Chinese laborers saved the railway construction company over three million at the time. Chinese and white laborers who toiled alongside each other in the canneries, mines, and logging camps shared a broader unity in their exploitation, which gave rise to moments, moments of shared. Agitation and resistance. White supremacy, however, was the tool that was used to divide and conquer, appeasing white workers by giving them limited privileges, sometimes called the wages of whiteness, which functioned by demonizing and scapegoating Chinese workers as the cause of their poverty and their exploitation. The nation-building project, in turn, provided、uh, produced anti-Asian legislation to solidify. Uh, settler processes and practices of entitlement to the city. 
uh, once the railway was built, uh, the government passed the Chinese Immigration Act of 1885, which forced a head tax on all new Chinese immigrants. Throughout the two decades of the Chinese Exclusion Act, 1923 to 1947, only 44 Chinese people were permitted to enter Canada. The act prevented any women from arriving to Canada, cutting hundreds of families in half. Chinese Canadians who stayed were forced to endure continued levels of poverty in the Chinatowns of the larger cities and towns abandoned by the false promises of prosperity. Once in the city, Vancouver's Chinatown and Japantown experienced virulent opponents from all parts of Vancouver. White lobbyist groups attempted to push the Chinatown neighborhood away from Hastings Street, and by the turn of the century, anti-Asian racism was embedded in all, all layers of society. Throughout the 20th century, anti-Asian racism extended from protectionist business interests to colonial planners, discriminatory city councilors, but it also moved into the culture of labor leaders, white trade unionists, reaching beyond elites into the realm of, of white populism. Both currents are still very much with us today, is one of the arguments of the, of the, the pamphlet. And so as you can see, I skipped a lot. And so now we arrive at present-day Chinatown. And the section is called um, Cultural Adventures of Orientalism. Present-day Chinatown is characterized as an exotic tourist attraction, where Chinese culture is relegated to Orientalist representations of Chinese motifs, such as lanterns and dragons on building exteriors. As, as anti-Asian racism mounts over Chinese-only language signs in Richmond, Chinatown reveals the true face of racism where language continues to be a key mechanism of exclusion. Information on new development and city processes uh, to approve development applications are conducted primarily in English with inadequate or non-existent Chinese language translation. As long as Chinese speaking residents are prevented from voicing their dissent or having control over decisions about the neighborhood, Chinatown can continue to be defined by others. The Chinese, uh, sorry, the city's Chinatown neighborhood plan uh, and revitalization strategy states that for Chinatown to continue to remain relevant, it must reach out to people of all backgrounds, setting the stage for Chinatown to become a gentrified and white middle class neighborhood. Um, uh, as, a kind of, as a kind of ruse of history, this economic neglect that has taken place over 150 years and disinvestment has actually created a rent, a rent gap um, where culture, in a sense, becomes a selling point for the neighborhood on the precondition that the people who made that very culture um, are excluded from the process of the, the so-called re revitalization. So I'll finish on this section, Cultural Adventures of Orientalism. As Jean-Paul Sartre once wrote of Shanghai, have the poor taken the city or will the city overtake them? In the context of today's Vancouver, one hint of an answer to this question is given by the fact that the very, the very notion that there are poor people in Chinatown has been ruled out by dominant images and representations of the neighborhood. The image of Chinatown as being ever prepared for a new round of investment capital, 
cleansed by Business Improvement Association elites, the endless blogs of booster culture, if not planners and tourists, pamphlets. The objective of the creative city is always to propel the city into the compulsive design of prosperity. As Asian spaces and places within the city are being handed over to the machinery of, of a generic yuppie culture and a, a creative class identity, the emerging culture keeps the names, the buildings, the icons, and the images of former places and their heritage. New condos such as Ginger are designed and marketed within the verna vernacular of the or Orient, now inhabited by middle-class professionals from Kitsilano or what have you. New businesses are recruited into Chinatown to serve its new newest classes of residents, including trendy restaurants serving Asian cuisine targeted to a wider audience. Whether through yoga, New Age Buddhism, or simply living in a loft in close proximity to the spirit of Chinatown, residents hanging from recessed Cantonese balconies can merge Eastern values with Western lifestyle. Uh, and this is the part with, with all the Remy quotes uh, that, that are, while they're entertaining, I think I'll, I'll, uh, I'll cut it off there and, uh, and so that we can hear Jamie and hear from Jamie and stuff. Thank you, Brent and Nate. So, our final uh, event tonight, <laughs> final reading uh, is actually not a reading, but a panel discussion or casual conversation, casual conversation, um, between Steph and Janie. So, Janie Leung is a community organizer fighting for social justice and people power with the Chinatown Action Group. Stephanie Ling is a producer of criticism, pamphlets, stories, essays, exhibitions, reviews, bluntness, anecdotes, shoutouts, wrestling, storylines, proposals, applications, jokes, readings, minimal poems, poems, dinner, compliments, and diatribes. She lives in Vancouver, frequenting grocery stores, the Cinematheque, and other air-conditioned spaces. Brent and Nate for your the citation. Um, how are you? Good. It's so great to hear it in Cantonese. <laughs> yeah, yeah it was you. pretty good. Um, shall we just jump right in? Sure. Okay. Well, one thing I really w wanted to accomplish by thank you for thank you for being here. Thank you for being to talk to me. You know, we talk all the time. <laughs> Um, one thing I wanted to do was to paint a portrait of what the CAG does in the neighborhood. Um, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the Chinatown Action Group? Sure. Um, yeah, maybe first I'll say to you just to thank you all for, well, thank you, Steph and uh, Tara and Emma, even though today's the first day I met her, for bringing me into this space and for everyone for allowing me into the space. This is a new experience for me, for sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, so Chinatown Action Group, we formed two and a half years ago. Um, so you'll read in the pamphlet, um, it focuses on what's happened to Chinatown, specifically in the post-Olympic times, and there was a lot of um, city-led strategies that have 
led to these condos that we see here. And, um, and out of that came a lot of groups forming and organizing. They saw what's happening as a crisis and so people coming together. So Chinatown Action Group, um, we saw first the Chinese seniors from the Chinatown Concern Group fighting and speaking out and going to City Hall um, and just fighting against displacement from this neighborhood. And so we got together because um, both everyone in our group self-identifies as Chinese, so um, we have personal connections in this neighborhood. So people both live in this neighborhood and people like me don't live in the neighborhood, but um, we spent our childhoods here. Um, so it felt really important to organize around that. And also, I think just seeing the seniors fight, we saw ourselves in the seniors, you know? Like, I think um, the experiences we've, like for myself, the experiences I've previously had with racism, I see what's happening in Chinatown as a reflection of that and as an extension of that. So um, in a lot of ways for us, this work is, you know, a lot of us, we do other things in our lives, right? Like Byron's here, Vince is here, they're part of Chinatown Action Group. Um, we all have day jobs um, and we also organize as well after our day jobs. And I think we see this um, as part of well, just deeply part of the way we want to see our society and the way we see our lives. And um, so it's been two and a half years and <laughs> we're still going. Yeah. Yeah, great. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm curious too about Nope. I mean, Nope brought me in because we wanted to have a chat. So I'm curious about Nope and how you guys started and how you guys came to do this work in the neighborhood. Well, I feel like that's a question that's better for Vince, but I'll try my best to do justice to it. <laughs> um, yeah, well, NOPE is a, it's like a, I would describe it as a research collective, um, and it changes every year, just like a group of people gather and they conduct research in the community and try and reap material results, um, such as things like this pamphlet and to like, sort of try and bridge that weird gap between cultural workers and art workers and the residents of Chinatown and community organizers like yourself. And I would say that, I don't know, I was quite, um, I'd never participated in anything like Nope before. I met a lot of people that I didn't expect to meet, like a burgeoning media theorist who decided, who ended up translating this pamphlet, <laughs> Brent, and yourself, Jamie. Um, and it, I think it just really helps, it helped me to be more comfortable with like my own political engagements coming from an art context and feeling quite welcomed by, um, by an organizer like yourself who was open enough to come into our white cube <laughs> and I don't know, like listen to what we have to say even though I think it's more important that it's the other way around. Um, and what's happening in Chinatown, <laughs> I wouldn't have as much grasp on it if, as, as an, exclusively as an art worker or a cultural worker. And my, well, it sort of goes into my next question, which is like, what exactly are the things that 
we should be concerned about in Chinatown from that from that perspective. Okay. Such as like culture washing and like the 105. Um, the one, yeah, 105. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. And I think for me, you know, I have a particular experience in Chinatown, like me spending a lot of time here, um, this neighborhood being a very important part of both my childhood and my identity as a Chinese person. Um, and I also think, you know, for someone who lives here, like say you're a Chinese senior who's low income, their experience is very different. And in a lot of ways it's, um, when I think about what hap what's happening in this neighborhood and how painful it is to hear the stories of how seniors are impacted, you know, I think it's, the word gentrification sounds like such a, I don't know, it's a fancy word, right? Like it sounds, fine. <laughs> um, and then at the heart of it, it's, you know, it's, it devastates people's livelihoods, you know, like I think seeing people get evicted out of their homes or just seeing, um, hearing seniors talk about how um, it doesn't feel like their neighborhood anymore. They don't feel like they belong or they're welcomed here. Um, they're just really painful stories to hear. And I think about gentrification as a very violent process, even though the word is just very it kind of hides that, and I think, um, like, we can see what's happening in Chinatown, right? Like, we see these condos, and both, you know, what the pamphlet talks about in terms of it appropriating culture, that's enraging and that's painful, and also, on top of that, what's painful is that, um, in a way, the neighborhood's being cleansed, right? Like, the city never wanted Chinatown to exist. The city has always, and also, I think, like, other people in Chinatown didn't want it to exist. It's always been seen as a slum. So now this is kind of seen as, there's been other previous attempts at slum clearance and this is the latest one and it's been pretty strong in this neighborhood. Um, so I think both materially you see low income people, so not just Chinese, there's you know a lot of poor people, uh, poor white people and indigenous people who are also getting pushed out of the neighborhood and they're part of the community. Um, but I think the insidious side of what's happening, so you brought up art washing, um, and let's, Andrew, yeah, yeah, let's, yeah. Andrew wrote a really <laughs> great article about it uh, recently, so I can try to define, I don't know, you're probably better at me, but <laughs> defining it, but um, how I understand art washing is that it's a strategy, so it's um, promoted by government developers, you're providing subsidies to arts and culture organizations, people um, to come into a neighborhood. So these are usually working class neighborhoods, usually racialized neighborhoods um, where people are poor and the land values are usually depressed. So they come in and it's usually the first wave of gentrification. So you're trying to make the neighborhood seem more palatable to white middle class people, right? Like what I often hear about Chinatown is that it's a dangerous neighborhood, it's sketchy, people don't wanna come here. So the first phase is to bring arts and culture to make it more welcoming of other people to move in. So it's kind of setting the stage for speculation. It's setting the stage for land values to increase. Um, and I think the interesting thing about Chinatown, well, the interesting thing about art washing is that it also kind of denies that a culture existed here in the first place. Um, and the example I see is that, if, I don't know if you guys noticed, but on Gore and Pender Street, that corner, there's a building. Um, it's the Lo Di Miro, so a really important figure in Chinese culture. 
um, you just watch it get covered as that condo development is built. And so not only did the mural get covered, and then I just walked by and then you see like black, that tattoo parlor, black tattoo, I think, like put these murals on top of it with dragons and fans and stuff. And it was just super offensive to me because not only did you cover a mural from the community, you just replaced it with art that appropriated the culture here, so. The mural was also commissioned by the city after some sort of like, in some sort of commemorative manner, wasn't it? It's like 50 years, like 100 years in Chinatown. Here's a, here's a mural. We're gonna cover it up in five years with a condo. Yeah. That's the yeah. that's the narrative, right? Yeah. 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 So, like, I guess my next question would be: Is there, is there a distinction between, like, art washing and artist-run culture that happens in Chinatown, or like, do you perceive a distinction between art washing and? like this first wave of gentrification and like artist run centers that have been here maybe for like five to 10 years. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, right? Cause I think, um, cause I think the way I see Chinatown and you know, how we try to struggle for Chinatown is that, you know, it's not about, um, I think we're, it's how you think about who is causing the problem. So I think, um, there's big structures and big power and big money that's creating what we see right now in Chinatown. And um, it's not so much individuals, right? Like, I, I don't think um, people, yeah, I don't think, like, I, I also think there's a diversity in artists. Like, you've heard Bob Rennie's name <laughs> come up. So, you know, you have places like the Bob Rennie Art Collection. That's odious. But then you have places like 221A, which you know have been such an amazing support for us, gave us space, like we have no resources, so they allow us to meet. They allow us to have our like huge events, <laughs> like film showings and um, language lessons, and just like we kind of take over the space and that's been super helpful. And I see them as, you know, 221A sees themselves as part of the community and they fight with us as part of the community. So. I think there's distinctions and I think there's also class within artists, right? And I see ourselves, you know, Chinatown has always been a working class community. Um, we unite with other working class communities across Vancouver. So I see this very much as this is our same struggle, right? Like we're in this together. This is about, you know, austerity measures. This is about neoliberalism. This is about, um, yeah, just capitalism and both like destroying this neighborhood, but also making it so difficult for working class people to both work and get on in the city, so. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I had a question for you, so I just segued myself into my question, but um, I was wondering for you as an artist, so how has neoliberalism impacted artists and artist-run spaces? Well, I think that often enough, like, the reason to justify, like, I guess, I think that it's a cycle where where we are confronted with a problem such as gentrification and we find ourselves implicit in it and then we perceive ourselves as being unable to participate in the, in like the struggle or like the counter, the counter activity behind it or for it because we're like, okay, well, you know, I have student debt and I have a studio practice which I pay for and can barely afford and I need to be present and stylish and like, 
I have, and this is how I will gain opportunities, and I can't say no to deviously presented opportunities to me because there's so few of them around. And I read in, in your notes earlier <laughs> that this is a strategy where we have thrown one crumb and it splits like an otherwise, it could, what could otherwise be a unified, um, unified like, a collective effort um, in the neighborhood. Because we all take up the same space. Um, and when we, I think as an artist anyway, like I can't speak for all, or I'm not even an artist, but I can't speak for all cultural workers or art workers, but. What was the question again? Oh, just how neoliberalism has impacted artists and artists-run spaces. Oh yeah, it's basically the wall between Culture, like cultural participation and political consciousness, in my opinion. What do you think about that? <laughs> I mean, like in the sense that it's like, okay, neoliberalism is the thing that is causing us to think that we have to not participate, and which is like, it's just something I sort of touched on in my statement, in the sense that you know we feel that we have so few opportunities and our rent is so high, and we don't know why we just like throw our arms in the air and say like, well, I guess I have to like try and scrounge up that extra little bit, but it's more of like, we're not really concerned with the systemic um, reason that our rent keeps going up and up and up and we feel more and more and more desperate, um, but that's neoliberalism, <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I think like one really good example for me is Artscape. So the building on Kiefer and Gore, the Sunwa building, um, so Artscape has leased most of it. And that was kind of interesting because I think the question about Artscape is really, there's differing opinions within um, my small Chinatown organizing community, but because um, I think there are some thoughts that like, you know, this is happening anyways, gentrification is happening. So we might as well take whatever we can get, right? So um, the Sunwa building, you know, it's if it's not Artscape, it's gonna be someone else that leases it, so at least with this, we might be able to leverage some free community space for some organizations. And, you know, it's that kind of like, I see neo neoliberalism as really constraining what we think is possible, right? Like both the isolation of different groups and just pitting different groups against each other, but then also like just, yeah, chaining us to what we think could be possible and what we could ask for. So. So the thing with Artscape is really interesting because now I see it's kind of like pitting the community, right? Like, should I try to get some space in there and kind of acknowledge that this is what's happening in the community? Or do we kind of just ask for something different altogether? Like, this is not good enough and this mm -hmm. is an important space in the community. Well, the question is where are the amenities coming from? Like, where, I mean, more or less you have to follow the money. Like, there's that example where you were offered space in Artscape. Um, but it was going to be subsidized. Your rent in Artscape, in Artscape as like a community organization was going to be subsidized by an architecture firm that would also have a space there. So that puts like... Yeah, and that's the model. That's the neoliberal model, right? Exactly, I will preface yeah. that by it was just me asking a lot of pointed questions to the executive director, Genevieve, I think. So that was kind of what she, she threw me a bone. She was like, oh, we can get you free space. I'm sure we can get some architecture firm that would subsidize your rent to have a free space in the yeah. Sunwa building. 
And that was kind of like, and that's how the way all the developments work too. It's like, oh, you want social housing? Well, the developer's gonna build three extra floors. Like, there's no government money for that, so you're gonna get private. Yeah, you're gonna have that privately subsidized or whatever, and, and that's kind of the only choice you have, and they present it that way. But I think when you look before neoliberalism happens, like, no, like, housing was federally provided. Like, this is not, you know, like, what we're asking for is not outrageous. Right, yeah. and more or less, it's like they're just creating the optics, like a progressive optics, which I think is sort of tied to, I don't know, like the idea of aesthetics, where it's like as artists, we come in and we create an aesthetic, and then like whatever, like how does that, how does that come, how does that come about? You know, then that's the concern around a lot of art making and art viewership, and like I think it applies to the way we could potentially deconstruct neoliberalism in the sense where it's like, oh, this thing is here and it looks like this, but where did it come from, you know? Because, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that that idea, like, yeah, like the, the, what is it, 18 units of social housing that were offered? Oh, 105 Keeper? Yeah. Uh, 25. 25. But as we know, the city changed the definition right. of social housing. So right. actually, we think none of them will, like, they said some units could be at, safer level, so $700 a month. If you're on welfare, that's $610 a month. You cannot afford a $700 apartment, so either right. way, nothing was affordable. Yeah. I mean, these are the sorts of numbers and facts that affect the way that our community orients itself as well, in the sense that, you know, artist-run centers are gonna get displaced eventually. And then, this is, like, this is, we're talking about second-wave gentrification mm -hmm. here, where, you know, the gentrifiers get gentrified or whatever. <laughs> um, and then that's when, that's when I imagine people will become concerned and involved. But my, my intention um, is to be concerned before that happens. Um, and I think it's kind of a silly question to ask, like, well, how can I, how can I prevent this? I don't know. I don't have the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think but, yeah. that it's, uh, I don't know, whatever yeah. we're doing right now can't be wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think about that. <laughs> I think about that a lot. Um, and I think, like, you know, I think for me, the most transformative moments was, like, the 105 Keeper hearing was amazing. Like, it was stressful, it was enraging, but it was also, like, you know, I saw so many familiar faces, like, you came... Um, we had so many people in the community come and support and, you know, I kind of think, I get a sense, and I could be wrong, but I kind of think there's a, there's a lot of feelings of guilt um, and possibly we, not, we may not be as friendly towards artists, um, but I also think it's not, you know, it's kind of, there's a lot of frustration but I also think there's a lot of really amazing work being done and there's so much to do. Like I think this conversation is good and I think there's such a silence around gentrification. There's a silence around what's happening. And I think neoliberalism for one thing and many other people are trying to push this as a very natural process that's happening in the neighborhood. Like, oh, this is the progression of events, right? This is the development of a neighborhood. But I think it's so important to name it and call it out and acknowledge that this event is taking place in Chinatown, and also that Chinatown is located on land that was taken and is being occupied, right? Like, I think it's important to 
keep talking about those histories and not just pretend that this is normal um, or pretend it's normal that there's homeless people in tent cities. Um, and I think, yeah, there's a lot to do. And I think, you know, we're all trying to figure out the best way to do it. But yeah, I think we're on the same side, right? Because there actually definitely is two sides. And there isn't really a hanging on the middle. If you're hanging on the middle, you're kind of on the bad side. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're hanging out in the middle, then you're not really doing anything. Yeah, which, which means you're yeah. siding with the status quo. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying in the sense that just because we're doing we're not we're doing something whatever we're doing isn't wrong. It's it automatically means that whatever we're doing is right. It's like there's no resting on our laurels here. It's just like a continued, 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 continued attempt to not like aggravate gentrification and become more informed, you know, without feeling like it's without feeling so like um, dis like uh, what's the word like demoralized it's like I don't feel demoralized even though like there's there's like it's it's like a lot of intense and very opaque um apparatuses social apparatuses you know that we have to confront yeah yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and I've seen some really amazing collaborations, you know, like New York, I don't know if you guys heard about the Chinatown Art Brigade, but amazing, like artists collaborating with anti-displacement organizers and doing some amazing stuff together. So I think there are avenues for people to work together. And, you know, when I think about the artscape thing, like we're already kind of known as activists, right? Like people already write us off, you know, but I think it's really powerful for people to speak to their own community, right? Like, it'll be really powerful if people from other parts of the community also speak out about what's happening um, and lend support and also stand with the residents here who are fighting. I think that's really important. Um, and I think, you know, um, and there's really easy, I don't know, I think like my organizer hat, like there's just so many different entry points to get involved, you know, like we have a petition going on, there's some over there. We're putting out our people's vision for Chinatown. We had some newspapers, so people helped us distribute newspapers, so great. Um, the speakers here from the event donated to us, which is much, much appreciated. Um, and, you know, like people share their space with us, which is really nice. Like, I think there's so, there's so few resources to grassroots organizations and artists. It's really nice to see both sharing of spaces, and that's also a way that we can talk together, right? And we can um, co-inhabit spaces and learn from each other. So um, I think there's many ways, but I think in a lot of ways, we're both kind of, um, we're not sure of how to work together. So maybe that kind of creates the separation, but. Oh yeah, it's an ongoing experiment. Yeah, but I think not, even yeah. for us. Like, oh yeah, right <laughs> so now, like very interesting. Like, <laughs> even planning this, I think even just navigating a lot of trust and you know, the broader things around what's happening in the neighborhood, but yeah, yeah, we have to try. I agree. Um, I, I don't have any final remarks. Do you? Uh, no, but I will just plug, you know, I think there's a lot of amazing work being done in the neighborhood, and it's such an uphill battle even to gain legitimacy, and um, I just have a lot of appreciations for me being given a space here to speak that people are interested in hearing, and um, yeah, it's been a good experience. Thank you.
we going to take, uh, we weren't going to take questions. Should we take questions? Do we have questions? Oh, God. Okay, what is it? Sure. I'm just, I'm just really nervous, okay? <laughs> Jamie, do you want to take questions? Great. So, so the question is, how can people get involved? Okay, sure. Yeah, so uh, actually right now, I don't know how much. So this is going to affect everyone that works in Chinatown. There's kind of been an onslaught in the neighborhood. Um, so the city is actually coming up with a plan that we call the CRAP, the Chinatown Economic Revitalization Action Plan. Um, so they're essentially... Mm, it's kind of a rezoning plan, which sounds really boring, so I had to learn all the zoning stuff, but um, they're allowing buildings at certain heights and no social housing, so it's gonna impact the entire neighborhood. Um, and because of that, Chinatown Action Group, we've launched a response to that, so that's our people's vision for Chinatown, and we've launched a petition um, kind of leading up to the city um, approving this plan, because we know they do. Um, so it's a petition calling for all new market developments to stop or to be paused until they build social housing to match the number of market units they've since built in the city. Um, so we have some petitions there. Um, and you, you can also check out, so the broader People's Vision for Chinatown came up with us talking to residents. We knocked on doors. Um, we went into the old SRO buildings, we talked to residents who get left out of these city consultation processes um, because, you know, either they don't speak English or they're elderly and not very mobile and they can't make it out to City Hall or these processes, these like open houses, um, and asked them what their concerns are in the neighborhood and what they dream of for this neighborhood. So we came up with a people's vision for Chinatown. Um, both identifying the issues and also the solutions for the neighborhood, including, you know, affordable housing, um, affordable retail, uh, cultural spaces, um, safety. So all these things in the plan. You can go to Chinatownaction.org to see the full plan. I have one copy there, and we're doing another print that Byron just sent off. Not sure when it's available. Um, so we're printing more soon. So one way to support is sign the petition. We will be asking people to endorse the people's plan because um, one big thing is just legit legitimacy for our group and I think getting endorsements is really helpful and supportive. Um, if you have space that we can borrow, that's we're always scrambling to find space in the community. The Carnegie's awesome, but you know, it's, it's nice to have space. Um, and, you know, there's different ways of supporting, so we can also have a conversation around what ways you'd like to support. But um, another big thing is also, you know, when, it, when things go to public hearing, it's such an undemocratic process, but 
when you flood them and make the counselors sit through hours and hours of a public hearing, it just feels kind of good. So it's kind of <laughs> nice to <laughs> get your five minutes at the podium. I think Vince used it to abuse the counselors. You know, just it's it's nice to show. <laughs> I think like we're always seen as the minority, and I think it's always helpful to have people join in and show that. We aren't the minority. And there's many voices and not just the residents calling for this. Yeah. Okay. Thank you.